You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. I'm reading right now a mystery novel. I don't read a lot of mystery novels, but it's kind of fun. It's, um, it's called Gaudy Night by Dorothy Sayers. It's the 10th book in an 11-book series. And the central character in each of the books is usually a, a guy named Peter Whimsy, Lord Peter Whimsy. He's a detective. He's a bachelor, and uh, he's sort of this well-heeled gumshoe, finds himself stumbling into these unfamiliar, unexpected situations. And you know the genre. We all know the genre of a, of a mystery novel. The, something strange is going on, and, and uh, you know, it's like, like, like broken glass, blood on the curtain, puddle of water, you know, and then, and then the detective is the person who steps into that situation and asks probably the most important question, why? Why this particular combination of events? Why? What, what, what does it mean? And I was thinking about that, and I, and I think that a lot of us, if not all of us, at some point in our lives will read our lives like we read a mystery novel. You know what I mean? You get to a certain age and you become self-aware and you think about your life and you realize this life didn't have to go this way, and yet it did. Why? You know, I'm, your life is very particular. You were given a certain skin color. You were born into a particular family. You, uh, a health condition or precondition. You have, um, you know, the country, time and space and history. It, it, this is just you. So here you are. And at some point, you tend to ask, what's the meaning of me? And why has my life gone this way, not that way? And why did this happen and not that happen? And we sit there and we kind of, like a detective, puzzle over it a little bit and ponder it. And I think these are good questions. And I think they're good questions for this time of year. Advent's a a time for mystery, and it's a time, therefore, in the church where we ought to be able to bring our questions, ones we suspect have answers and even the ones... We suspect don't have answers. And we ought to join ourselves to the company of those throughout the ages who, whether they were physically present or who joined this company through the gift of imagination, gathering around the manger, a first century feeding trough, peering into that trough and looking at this baby named Jesus and asking, why? What sense can we possibly make of this thing they call a gift? Well, we're going to look at that uh, story through fresh eyes this year. Our theme is Newborn King, and we'll be looking at the Gospel of John. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, which theologians oftentimes call John's prologue. And there's something interesting to me about John's prologue in that he tells the story of Jesus' origin very differently from any of the other gospel writers. He's the fourth evangelist. He's writing towards the end of the first century. He's assuming that you already know something about the birth of Jesus. Perhaps you've read the other gospels by that point. And think of how those who tell the story of Jesus in the other gospels do it differently. For them, there's this very human, very tender story but a whole different set of characters than we get in John's gospel. We, we get in, in the other gospels, uh, angels and the innkeeper, and there's Mary, of course, and there's, and there's Joseph and shepherds and all that. But John, he, he says, I, I, I want to take you back 
before that, way before that. I want to take you back, not just to the birth of Jesus, but before the birth of Jesus into eternity past. I want you to see that before he was ever born, this one was a king, transcendent and supreme. And I want you to know the backstory to the baby. And in that sense, as I've been reading John's prologue, I've come to think of it like a prequel. If you ever watch a prequel of a movie, you know, you've already seen the movie or you've already read the book, and then someone comes out with a prequel. And when you do that, you realize, oh my gosh, there are all these themes. There's a richness to the storyline, the plot that existed before, and the characters that were there. So that you uh, see the story that's a familiar story in in new, new perspective. So I think John's prologue is really the prequel. He's saying, let me go way back and tell you what's happened. I'll give you the backstory to Jesus. And I think if we can get the backstory to Jesus and see him in fresh perspective this Advent, it will give us a fresh perspective on our lives as well and a new sense of meaning for our lives. Because the themes that are in the backstory of our Savior are the themes in the backstory of our lives as well. Because remember, Jesus enters into our humanity. So that's what we're trying to accomplish with Newborn King. Let's get started tonight. We're going to look at the first couple of verses of John's uh, prologue. Would you open up your Bible to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and then 14. Verse 14. We'll find that on page 862 if you're grabbing the Pew Bible. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read the, these three verses together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it or are coming to believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip to 14. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now let's skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Hey, by the way, did anyone run the marathon this morning? I'm just curious. I want to see. Everybody's sound asleep. Did so, raise your hand if you did. You probably can't lift your hand. I don't see anybody. Oh, we do. We have a half marathon? No? Okay. I don't see anybody. Okay, good. Well, then we were all the lazy ones and feeling very refreshed and bright. So. Uh, that had nothing to do with anything, but I was just curious. <laughs> this does have something to do. You may have noticed on Thursday that P.D. James died. Now, P.D. James is one of the great novelists in this genre of uh, detective or mystery fiction. Uh, she died in Oxford. She claimed, by the way, that Dorothy Sayers, the author of the book I'm reading, was her inspiration. And the media dredged up a lot of old stories so we could remind ourselves of who P.D. James was, and one of the things she had said in an earlier interview caught my attention as I was thinking about the prologue here. She says this, I think the detective story affirms our belief that we live in a rational and a moral and a comprehensible universe, despite all the evidence which is coming to us that we do no such thing. That's interesting. She's saying the detective novelist affirms our belief that we share that we live in a, a rational, moral, and comprehensible universe. And then she's acknowledging, but i got to admit, there's a lot of evidence that we don't live in any such thing. You know, And I think she's calling attention to the, the experience that we all have of looking at the chaos in the world and saying, oh my gosh, this is, this is the world that God loves? 
or the chaos of our lives and say, really, is, is this, is, is this, is there meaning? Is there any meaning here? Now, I, I think that um, the, the thing we see when we look at the backstory of Jesus first is that, that John claims there is meaning in the universe. And we see that in the very first sentence of the gospel when he says, in the beginning was the word. Now, that's interesting. He's telling the story of Jesus. Why doesn't he just say, in the beginning was Jesus? Well, of course, Jesus was the name that his human parents gave him, so he didn't have the name Jesus in eternity past. He could have said, in the beginning was the Son of God, but he doesn't refer to Jesus as the Son of God. We'll get that later in verse 14, but not now. He wants to introduce Jesus in his pre-incarnate, pre-existent state as the Word. Some of you know that the Greek word John uses here is the logos, which means word. But the original, uh, uh, the history, if you trace, as theologians have traced the history of that word through uh, the Greek usage, you realize it was originally um, uh, a word that meant to organize, to arrange, to collect, or to order. And when we think about the uh, English words we use that have logos in the root, we can sort of see this. Um, for example, the word logistics has logos in it. Can you hear that? Logistics is bringing order to a task. And the English word dialogue, as you hear dialogue, like logos, is bringing order to talk or conversation. And logic, or logos, logic, is... Uh, bringing order to thought so that there actually can be the pursuit of meaning. So, in the beginning was the meaning, one writer suggests. Uh, John could be translated here. Now, it's, it's a significant word in the conversation of the Greek philosophers throughout the generations. As the great Greek philosophers reason with one another, they keep coming back to this word logos. And it was understood by one philosopher to, to mean, for example, that the eternal principle of order, logos. Another said this is the rational principle by which everything exists, logos, rational principle. For others, logos meant common law and even reason itself. The idea in all of this is that when you and I look at the world around us, we can see order. And we think to ourselves, well, th there must be a mind or a rationality behind this order. And in fact, that's uh, what John is picking up on. He's aware of the richness of this word in the philosophical tradition. And he's saying, yes, in the beginning there was order. There is order. This logos does exist. There is meaning in the universe. And yet... As P.D. James says, there are moments when we look at the world around us and we see no such thing, no such thing. Today we live in a day in which the possibility of meaning is disputed. For example, particle physicist Steven Weinberg, who received a Nobel Prize, uh, writes this, This present universe has evolved from an unspeakably unfamiliar early condition and faces a future of extinction of endless cold or intolerable heat. The more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. Well, that's a cheery thought for Christmas. There is no meaning, he's saying. The more you try, the more we learn, the less meaning you have. It seems pointless. 
Now, we all think that from time to time. Some of us are committed to that view intellectually, but I want to suggest to you that it's impossible to live with it, and none of us do. None of us live consistently with that view. And I question whether it's actually true. And I want to give you two illustrations of that, justice and art. I think there's a logos or a meaning behind our notions of justice. This, by the way, turned out to be a a pivotal reflection for C.S. Lewis as he went from atheist to theist and believer in Jesus Christ. Justice. Here's what Lewis writes. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? He's saying, I must have had a deeper sense of justice in my mind, even to be able to say, oh, this world is very unjust. He says, of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, Lewis writes, I like this line, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. You see that? That's interesting. This is what some people have called the problem of good. Well, we say, oh, there's just so much bad, there can't be a God. Well, what about good? You know, How could you even say that's bad if you don't have some in, internal, deep-rooted sense of what goodness is? You wouldn't even be able to recognize something that's bad. Dostoevsky wrote, if there is no God, then everything is permissible. But we don't live that way. Everything is permissible. We don't want to live that way. We look at the news and we see rioting and looting in the streets of American cities this week, and we want to say, that's not right. And we look at the news and we see evidence of racism in the streets of America in our own city this week, and we say, that's not right. We're appealing to a shared sense of justice. We're saying, there is really something there, there. And that's the logos behind our notions of justice. Now, let's think about art for just a second. I know we, we commonly say that beauty is in the high of, of the beholder, which is good news for some of us. But uh, I, and I, think, and I think it's true. But I also think there are experiences of beauty that transcend culture and time. I suspect that if you interviewed people all across the world throughout history, th- th- there were some things we would agree on just are beautiful, in- intrinsically beautiful. Like, I take the sunset. I don't know if you saw that as you're coming to church tonight. Just beautiful sunset. Beautiful. Then, of course, human artifacts, like the pyramids of Giza, or African rhythms, or uh, Chinese uh, painting. Just real beauty that I think we would all recognize. Leonard Bernstein was giving a lecture. He wrote about uh, the artist, in Beethoven in particular, at this, in this moment. I want to quote. He says, This somehow is the key to the mystery of a great artist that for reasons unknown to him or to anyone else, he will give away his energies and his life just to make sure one note follows another inevitably. Now, I like that word. He says inevitably. When you listen to Beethoven, you hear a note, and the next note just seems to be inevitable. And then he goes on. He said, the composer, by doing this, leaves us at the finish with the feeling that something is right in the world, that something checks throughout Something that follows its own laws consistently. Something we can trust that will never let us down. 
he's saying there's a kind of a logos behind good art. And you get a sense when you hear it, it resonates with you deep down inside, that you are connecting with something that you can trust, something that will never let you down. That's order. Beauty is a form of order. So let's move now from talking about the backstory of meaning in the universe to our story. And I think we all hunt for meaning. And I like the way Tim Keller puts it. He says we all have a logos. I want you to think about that for a second. You don't have to be a religious person. He says all of us, we all have a logos. We all have a meaning in our lives. We all have an answer to the question why. Why our lives? Why we do what we do? I want to tell you a rowing story tonight. And uh, with a little bit of apology and hesitation, because I told a long rowing story last week. And some of you are going, oh, no, not another rowing story. But this week, I want to tell you my rowing story. Because I rowed uh, for four years. I rowed in high school, and then I rowed in college. Um, I competed internationally. I took it very seriously. I was very committed to this sport. I was small uh, for a oarsman. I mean, you might be thinking, really? Because you know that oarsmen are supposed to be tall, and I'm not that tall, and they, they're supposed to be burly, and the truth is obvious. Uh, so I would compensate for that by diligence, stubbornness, hard work, long days, and um, focusing on technique. And I did well enough. And my goal was to row in the Olympics. In fact, one of my crewmates did go. I graduated from college in 87. I'm almost 50 years old, so you don't have to do the math. I want you to listen to me. In, 80, in 88, my crewmate went on to Seoul and brought home a silver medal in rowing in the Olympics. But it didn't happen for me. Why? I got injured. And I went through five surgeries and a year of rehab and a deep trough of despair, adolescent despair. And it was strong. And in the midst of all that, I asked our question. I asked, why? Why, why would this happen to me? Rowing is everything to me. You know, and, and I don't, I'm not sure how rowing really became everything to me. But during that year, something more important happened in my life than I believe a gold medal would. And, and that was, there was some, Oarsmen on the, on the boat who were Christians, followers of Jesus, they reached out to me. They showed me a love uh, that I had not experienced from peers ever. And I was, even more than that, impressed by the fact that they loved God. They invited me into a small group, started reading the Bible uh, with them together. And I came to know Jesus in a way I had never known him before. He became very real in my life. And see, um, for a while... I would have raised my hands and said, God, why are you letting this happen to me? What is this? My world feels like it's disintegrating. Now, though, I look back on that situation and I realize, no, just the opposite. My world was not disintegrating. It was being reordered. I was finding a new meaning. I was finding a real meaning. I was finding a meaning that I could trust, one that would never let me down. Relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest to you that all of us has a Logos, each of us. If you wanted to know what my Logos was in college, it would have been really easy. People in my freshman year called me the crew machine, and it wasn't really a compliment. And then I was so focused. And you could tell that my Logos was rowing. That it was, if you looked at my time, my money, my diet, 
how I spent my weekends, who I hung out with, what I read, all these things. I, my life was optimized around uh, rowing. And so that was my, it was my logos. And if you want to know what your logos is, start asking the question, why? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? Why do you go to work? Why do you hang out with the people that you do hang out with and don't hang out with the people that you don't hang out with? Why do you spend your money the way that you spend it? All these questions will take you back to where you're looking for meaning. I don't even think I liked rowing, honestly. But somewhere along the way, I got the idea in my head because I had done fairly well that I could keep doing well. And if, it, if I could get to the Olympics, then in the eyes of myself and my friends and the wider culture, my life would make sense. I would have meaning. That was the fight. It was really about meaning for me. And I suspect that you've got some kind of fight like that in you. We let the culture tell us what's meaningful. And so for some of us, it's our kids, it's our work, our academic life, it's our beauty, whatever it is. And these can be all very good things. But ultimately, if they become the meaning of our lives, they're very fragile things. We hunt for meaning. Now let's look finally at the newborn king story. We've seen that there's meaning in the universe, and our story is this hunt for meaning, but the newborn king tells us that meaning is hunting for us, which is the best truth yet. John Chrysostom, the pastor and theologian at the beginning of the fourth century, he reflects on this and has changed the way we read this. He says, pay attention in verse 1 to the verbs. And if you have it open, you might just look here, verse 1 again. He says, there are three verbs. They're actually all the same verb in English and in Greek. It's the verb is to be in the past tense. And each of these three verbs tells us something different and better about the logos or the meaning. In the beginning was the word. He says this, this phrase gives us the eternal being of the logos. In the beginning was the word, eternal past. And then the second, and the word was with God. And Christism says, this gives us the relational being of the Logos, with God. It's a relational meaning. And then the word finally was God. And this is the climax. This gives us the divine being of the Logos. This, this is not just someone who was with God, but this is God, this Logos. This is now the Logos who in verse 14 becomes flesh, takes on our humanity, enters into our humanity, and lives among us or pitches his tent among us. What this is saying is, of course, that the one who is writing the story of human history has become a character in the story. That the creator has become a creature. This is the real mystery of, of, of the season. Uh, that God has spoken for himself. Jesus is, the, is God's word about himself. There are a lot of other words about God uh, throughout history, but this is the only word in which God has spoken for himself. And you and I will never find more information about God than we find in his son, Jesus Christ. You and I will never find more meaning for our lives or for all of life than we will find in Jesus Christ. He's the perfect self-disclosure of God in time and space. Stop hunting for anything else. But the good news is he's hunting for you. He has come, this God who, who's, who's relational, into your life to live with you and among us. 
The uh, first follower of Jesus Christ that I'm aware of who ever engaged with the Greek philosophers was the Apostle Paul. And it's a great story to reread. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul comes to Athens for the first time. And he's teaching in the synagogue. And some of the Greeks say, oh my gosh, this is strange stuff. You've got to come. Please come. We have some questions for you. And they took Paul and they invited him into the Areopagus, which is this place where the philosophers of ancient Greece had debated questions of meaning since uh, for centuries. And now we just a humble follower of Jesus. Come and tell us about meaning. And he's, of course he speaks about Jesus, who's risen from the dead. But I want you to catch a particular part of his message here. Uh, he says this in verse 26. He says, God has made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and God has allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live. Why? Now, let me ask you, why? The next verse says it. So that they, meaning we, people, would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. He's saying, he's saying, I believe Jesus is revealing to us a God who has actually fixed the times and places of human existence. And he's done it so that you would grope through your life to find, and you would ultimately find him who is reaching out to you. What this means to me is that even the tragedy in my life, even my goof-ups, yes, even the broken glass on the floor and the blood on the, carpet, uh, on the curtain are things that God can use, has designed to use, so that I will someday find the meaning of my life in relationship with him. He's looking for me. And for some of us, it might take us one year, it might take us 60 years, but that's the meaning of your life, is to find God in Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Meaning is not an answer to your question, it's a person. A person who walks with you through the mystery. So let me uh, be very practical. If you want to think, okay, so the wisdom of Jesus is really the wisdom of living life with Jesus. How do I do that? Well, let me give you one little piece and say, what I recommend is that you think about your life like a detective who thinks about mysteries. When a detective wants to identify who done it, what does she do? She's looking for two things, opportunity and motive. And when you want to think about what would be a meaningful action at any point in your life, ask yourself, what is my opportunity and what is my motive here? Oftentimes we can't do a lot to change our opportunities. We might lose our jobs. We might have an um, unfavorable diagnosis, and, and there we are. And we might feel like, well, that's the end. I don't have any other choice. But with Jesus, you always have a good choice to make. You always do. And prayer sometimes can remind us that. By the way, prayer can change your opportunities. God answers prayer. But it will always refocus our perspective on what our real opportunities are. Ask yourself, as we just discovered in our last uh, series, what would Jesus do if he were me? That's opportunity. But then motive. You can do a good thing for a bad reason, and it won't be meaningful. You have to have the right motive. And, and the, the motive that I would say is, is ask yourself, am I doing this for Jesus? Am I doing this to know Jesus better? Am I doing this to make Jesus known? If you're doing it for that reason, then it will be meaningful. You will invest your life with meaning. You'll be investing in something that you can trust that will not disappoint you or let you down. 
Let me give you a, a, a real quick illustration of this. Steve Hayner, I've mentioned him to you before, one of our former pastors here. He's struggling with pancreatic cancer, and we're, we're praying for Steve. This week, Steve was asked by World Vision to write a devotional for their staff, and he copied us on it as he sent it to them. And I wanted just to read to you a little reflection, a part of what Steve wrote. Because Steve doesn't have a lot of opportunity left in his life, but he's living with profound meaning, and he's got a lot of motivation to fight this. He says, facing death is a way of clarifying life. So let me tell you a few things that I've learned in the last months. First of all, when Jesus is all you have, you soon discover that Jesus is all you really need. Think about that. When Jesus is all you have, you discover he's all you need. I'm in the process of losing everything that I've known on this earth, but I will never lose what God has given me in Christ. Two, Steve Hainer writes, as long as I have life on this earth, I have a call. See, that's meaning. God has called me to follow Jesus in everything I do, to love the way Jesus loved, to listen to the Holy Spirit's promptings, and to be obedient to God's commands. Every day, no matter how sick I become, I still have a call. Number three, God will never give up in his work to transform me into the likeness of Jesus. At this stage in my life, God is using my disease to teach me. It's not easy, and I don't like to change, but God loves me too much to give up on me. And then four, joy is not about my circumstances, but rather about being held and sustained by God's love. If there is one thing that I can trust, it is God's love for me in Jesus Christ. Finally, let me tell you why I'm reading this book, Gaudy Night. I want to tell you how I picked it. I haven't read the other nine books in the series. I've jumped in just to this one book. And the reason is, in this one book, Gaudy Night, I knew that the main character is not the detective, Peter Whimsey. He's in the book, but he's not the main character. The main character is a woman named Harriet Vane. And many commentators have noticed the striking similarities between Harriet Vane and Dorothy Sayers, who is the author of the book. Say, gee, there's a lot of similarity there. Both of them are British women. Both of them were in the first class of graduates from Oxford University, female graduates from Oxford University. And they're both mystery writers, and there are many other connections as well. And so commentators have supposed that something has happened in the heart of the writer as she's written this, these stories with this character, Lord Peter Wimsley, the bachelor. She has gotten attached to the character. Because what happens in Gaudy Night is Dor uh, Harriet Vane, this character, marries the bachelor, marries the detective. And so the idea is that it appears that Dorothy Sayers has literally written herself into her own story to marry, to fall in love with, and to marry her lead character. It's as though she looked at the story, she became bonded with this character, and she said, I can no longer bear to watch this character live out his existence in my stories without me. And so she writes herself into the narrative and marries herself to the character. And they go through the rest of life's mysteries together. So I want to tell you tonight, brothers and sisters, God has loved you in exactly that way. That's what John is saying when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
and he became flesh and lived among us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the meaning of our lives. We thank you that our lives can be meaningful because there is meaning and you have come to us in Jesus Christ. We pray that tonight you will open us up in a fresh way to your notion of what would make our lives meaningful. We readily bring our chaos into your lives and in, in, uh, the chaos of our lives into your presence and invite you to have your way to order and reorder and make us as uncomfortable as you need to make us uncomfortable so that we can receive the fullness of the gift of your love in our life walking through the mystery. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.